and welcome to this Workers by the Numbers blogcast on the Power at Work blog uh, presented by the Burns Center for Social Exchange at Northeastern University. My name is Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Burns Center. Delighted to have you all here uh, with us today. Today we're going to be discussing the union members report for 2022 that was released just a few minutes ago by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. We're going to talk about what the numbers mean about or what they tell us about worker organizing, what it means for workers, what it means for the labor movement, and what it means for worker power in America. As is our practice on the Power at Work blog, we bring along the very best experts to talk about these issues, and we have two terrific guests today. Uh, let me start by introducing Sarah Nelson, the president of the Association of Flight Attendants and absolutely one of the most important spokespeople for organized labor and for workers uh, in the United States, as well as for progressive activism around the country. Sarah, terrific to have you here. Thank you so much, Seth. I'm so grateful that you invited me to join you today. Great, thanks. And our other guest uh, is my friend, Professor Kate Bronfenbrenner, one of the most important scholars, researchers of worker organizing in the United States. She's director of labor education and research and a senior lecturer at my alma mater, Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Kate, terrific to see you as well. It's great to be here and I'm very excited about this discussion. Great, well, uh, BLS, as I said, BLS released the results of its 2022 union members survey just 30 minutes or so ago. Here are the headline numbers. The number of union members in our country increased from 14 million to about 14.3 million. It was about a 273,000 worker increase. That's a 1.9% increase in union membership in the country. The union density rate, which is the percentage of employees who are union members, decreased from 10.3% to 10.1%. The reason that union membership rose and union density fell is that the number of employed workers, wage and salary workers in the United States, increased by 5.3 million or 3.9%, and the growth in union membership didn't keep up with the growth in employment. In the private sector, the union density rate decreased slightly from 6.1 to 6.0%. There are 193,000 more union members in the private sector. In the public sector, the union density rate decreased from 33.9% to 33.1%, but there were 80,000 more union members in the public sector as well. The union wage differential in 2022 was $187 per week. That's a slightly lower percentage than in 2021, but not much. This is a sort of a correction error. The union wage differential is the difference in the median earnings of union members and non-union members. There are a lot of factors that go into that. It's not just union status that determines that wage differential, but the bottom line is union workers earn about $9,000 a year more uh, at the median than do non-union workers. So in summary, more union members overall in 2022, more union members in both the public sector and the private sector, a still sizable union wage differential of more than $9,000 a year, but union density fell because of growth in overall employment. So those are the headline numbers. Sarah, let me turn to you first for a reaction. Were these results 
from 2022 a surprise to you? And would you say it's good news for workers or bad news for workers, or is it a mixed bag? I think these numbers are incredibly disappointing, actually, um, considering the moment that we're in and the real desire for workers to join unions. So uh, those increased numbers uh, are not necessarily related to union organizing. Um, those are already union jobs where there has been hiring back after the pandemic, uh, mostly. So I think that we should recognize that uh, we're not meeting the demand of the American worker right now. And we're going to have to do something pretty extraordinary because in 2023, uh, People still want unions in, a, in an incredible percentage more than, than we are delivering. And in fact, we're not only not delivering, uh, we're not even keeping up with the abysmal place that we were before. So um, this is a very bad trend uh, in my view, uh, especially considering uh, where we uh, as a nation and uh, we're gonna have to do a lot more. And I, we can talk a lot more about what we need to do and how we need to get there. Um, but I think that uh, we need to look at these numbers as a very serious wake up call because the labor movement is not meeting the moment. Uh, the people who wanna support the labor movement um, are not meeting the moment. And uh, we, we really, I believe that our democracy is on the line because we're not recognizing that increasing union membership, increasing activity in and having a voice in your workplace and taking on uh, the capitalists who are frankly controlling our economy, controlling our politics right now um, is, is why we are in these really dire straits and very difficult times where a lot of people are very concerned about the survival of our very democracy. Great, Kate, let me get you in on the conversation. Let me get your, your reaction. You watch worker organizing uh, and the labor movement very closely. Uh, were you surprised by today's numbers? What's your reaction to them? Is it good news, bad news, or a mixed bag for workers? I, I share Sarah's disappointment. I, I was not surprised. There, I would be very, very unusual for density to go up given the amount of organizing that's happened. We also have to remember that we're facing a, a new um, tactic by employers to aggressively oppose NLRB decisions and to not recognize the legitimacy of the NLRB. So even though we've had a surge in union organizing, those have not turned into wins yet because so many of them are being challenged all the way through the courts. And that you know the, these data are based on workers being asked, "Are you a member of the union?" in the CPS survey and if they haven't yet gotten a first contract and aren't yet paying dues, it is very possible they would say no, even though they won an election. So we have to bear that in mind. But also the number of new workers organized through the NLRB, although it's you know twice as many that were organized the year before, it is still a relatively small number. And we do not have data on the number who organize outside the NLRB through card check and rec um, voluntary recognition. And it's very difficult to get numbers on the public sector because there are 40 plus different agencies that do not centralize the data. So we really don't know how many workers are being organized. We know that more are organizing this year than before, but not enough compared to the number of new jobs added, um, jobs lost through layoffs, and particularly in you know, the public sector, the highly unionized sector. And so we cannot expect this win. It is going to have to take a great deal more organizing, 
unions using their bargaining power to get first contracts, public support, political support in order to make a dent in union density. Well, so let me ask both of you. Uh, so the headlines are full of worker activism and worker organizing. Uh, you know, uh, you all know that the, the, the brand names that we're talking about all the time uh, and that the press is talking about all the time, Amazon, Starbucks, Apple, REI, uh, Ultium, you know, the UAW just won a big victory in an, an electric vehicle uh, plant. The NLRB, as the Kate referenced, uh, reported an almost 60% increase in the number of petitions filed for worker representation elections. According to Gallup, unions have a 71% favorable rating. It's the highest rating that Gallup has ever recorded. And I think there is just a widely held perception that we're seeing a historically high level of worker activism in our country, maybe the highest that we've seen in decades. Sarah, Sarah you're, you're traveling the country, you're, you're meeting with workers and activists and organizers all the time. Um, were expectations too high? Are we believing our own press? Um, are we caught up in an echo chamber? Is that why we are disappointed about today's numbers? Or what? It, or what is it that's that's happening when there seems to be so much organizing, and yet it's not showing up in these numbers as you pointed out? First of all, Seth, I think that it's really important that we give a shout out to all the union organizers out there who are working around the clock to try to help people get a union at their workplace. Um, I want to give uh, a lot of credit to the I'm going to get a little emotional here, but the Starbucks baristas who's, who've given us a year, a full year of inspiration and excitement and uh, discussion about workers being able to win um, it, it, under the worst possible uh, circumstances. But as Kate pointed out, that hasn't yet resulted in a first contract that hasn't resulted in feeling the benefits of, of the union. So when I look at that 71% favorability, people are hurting. They've been hurting for a long time. They were hurting before the pandemic. Um, there's incredible growing inequality in our country. And people have been told, you know, vote, it will change it. Um, we see our politics almost more divided um, than we've ever seen before. Um, we don't necessarily see a lot of results, although let's be clear, the Biden administration has gotten the most results that any administration has gotten in decades. But this isn't yet translating to a change in the experience for people, for real people on the on the front lines um, and at the um, and at the kitchen table. And so we the next generation is saying, no one has laid down a golden path for me. And in fact, even if I try to better my life myself and take out a bunch of student loans and try to get an education, I'm going to be drowning in debt for the rest of my life rather than making my life better. And so people are saying, they're looking around and they're looking for answers and they're looking for a way to change things. And they know that collective action is going to make a difference. And, and these workers that don't even necessarily know how unions work, they really need unions 101, but they've heard, and I would say, I, I wanna give a lot of credit to the president on this, they've heard union over and over again from uh, the most powerful podium in the country. And they've heard um, from that podium that it is the government's job to promote union organizing even. 
And so people know that there is a solution here. They know that joining a union is the way to do it. Um, but now we have to see what are we doing where the unions already exist? How are we investing in supporting those union organizers, turning out more union organizers, fighting the fact that the companies are doing everything they can to slow down the process? I call it the four D's of union busting, divide, delay, distract, and demoralize. And so they're hoping, uh, Howard Schultz, for example, who has fired people illegally, um, who has um, closed stores where there's been organizing, who's tried to slow all of this down, are hoping very much that people will go to the place of demoralization and stop this uprising of an effort by uh, the people of this country to get the fair share of the wealth that we're creating and to have the good life that was promised for um, putting in that time on the job. But I should say time on the job is important too because across the country, what I'm hearing from union members and non-union members is not having control of your schedule, not having control of your life, having to work two and three jobs or having forced overtime and not being able to actually work so that you can live a life but um, having employers make you believe that working is your way of life. Um, this, is, this is the problem. And this is why I'm not surprised by these numbers, but I do think that it is incumbent upon the labor movement and everyone else who actually believes in a free society to figure out how we invest more in union organizing, get more union organizers out there, hold accountable these companies who are breaking the law and trying to deny workers their rights at work. And, and we've got to get serious about this because we are, if there were a company out there that knew that someone wanted their product, that 70% of the public wanted their product, but they were only delivering 6%, so heads would roll until that would change and they would figure out how, the, how to get that in people's hands. So we have to figure out how to change the dynamics here, get these first contracts, get unions um, on, on the property and hold accountable the companies who are trying to stop that from happening. Right. Uh, Kate, I wanna pick up on, on a couple of Sarah's points. Uh, let me just say, um, I guess I'm less, dis less disappointed than both of you, or at least I had lower expectations going in. Uh, I wrote a post for the Power at Work blog, uh, sort of previewing these numbers. And, uh, and I said, uh, admitting that the goal I was setting was lacked ambition and was not sustainable over the long term, I said any growth would be a good thing. And we saw growth in union membership numbers here. And the reason I said that is there's been no growth. In fact, there's been shrinkage over the, since 2017. So maybe this is a first step in the right direction. And, and both of you point out that, uh, you know, what BLS does is they survey workers and they ask them, are you a union member? And uh, Kate's point is an important one. It's possible that, that workers who have been organized into a union, but like the workers at, at JFK 8, Amazon Warehouse in Staten Island, who haven't sat down and been able to sit down with their employer and negotiate a deal because the employer refuses to come to the table, or all those Starbucks workers, thousands of Starbucks baristas and other workers who have organized a union, have been certified, and yet they still are, are not able to bargain because the employer is 
uh, is illegally surface bargaining, and in addition to firing workers, as Sarah pointed out. So there's some question about where the numbers are, but to me, growth is growth. Let's, you know, at least we're headed sort of in the right direction. But let me ask you, Kate, because you're you're deep inside not just the numbers, but also inside the policy here. Um, is this the best we can expect until the law changes? Um, is it simply too hard in America to organize a union? So expecting workers to take on a, a gigantic fight when the law is stacked against them and allows employers to engage in all kinds of behavior designed to either bust an organizing drive or avoid unions in the first place. Is this just sort of what you know, my, my lack of ambition is as optimistic as we can be? There's no question that in the US, it is extremely difficult to organize. Workers literally have to jump through hoops of fire in order to organize. And they, um, and then again, to bargain a contract. My research has shown the majority of employers continue to threaten, coerce, intimidate, surveil, um, and fire workers when they try to organize and yet even close down the workplace to avoid unionization. I do not think, though, that we should assume that that labor law reform is the only way that we're ever going to move forward, because I think it's actually the opposite. We don't they have the power to get labor law reform. There are not enough workers organized. There's not enough activity happening. The only you don't get growth because law change, you get you get the law changed if you have the growth and the power of the labor movement. So one of the failures of the labor movement has been this consistent thing, well, it's too hard to organize, let's wait for labor law reform, which is putting the cart before the horse. Unions have to get out there and organizing no matter how hard it is. And I share with Sarah the deep respect for the organizers that are out there day in and day out, but even greater for the workers who are taking the risk because That's right. we need to remember that when you when you survey workers about whether they would vote for a union today if they had the opportunity, close to 50% say yes, and that number keeps increasing. And it is especially high among young workers. Young workers are very discouraged about what's happening in the economy. They face debt. They look at the world and go, it may not be around in a couple of years. I want my employer to do something about that. I want to have power to do something about that. They're worried about race discrimination. They're worried about opportunities for women's access to healthcare and abortion. And, and they're worried about immigrant rights. And so they are pushing employers in new directions and they want they see unions as the best way to do that. But unions still aren't getting out there enough to, and, and focusing on the issues these young workers care about. They're not putting enough resources into organizing as much as they'd say, we're spending all we can. They're, you know, Politics continues to be the priority and right now the priority needs to be organizing before politics. I also, we need to, we need to remember right now that perhaps the biggest block to organizing is not the legislation, but our judiciary. We are living at a time where the third branch of government, the judicial branch has, has way too much power, this three-legged stool is tilted. And, and regardless of what unions do, the, the courts are now overturning precedents in terms of union rights to organize and strike and bargain. And that we really, you know, if, if workers put too much faith in the law as the solution, they're going to run in, 
the situation we have now where employers are just saying, we don't care what the NLRB says. We don't care that you won. We're going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. And we all wonder just how the Supreme Court would rule. My data also show that, you know, despite years of evidence and great examples from many unions, including Sarah's, about the best ways to organize, the majority of unions are still having a very legal focused of campaign strategy. They aren't, they aren't using their power in the workplace and the community, both locally, nationally, and internationally to leverage the employer to see that the cost of not recognizing the union and not settling a contract is greater than it is to settle. And that's what unions have to do in this kind of economy, with this kind of opposition, unions have to be creative, effective, and courageous in terms of the strategies they use to take on employers. Well, I want to, I, I, such an important shout out to the workers who are organizing, uh, Kate, uh, and I, I want to give all respect to the worker organizers, but I, but I also want to go inside the decision of workers who are in the context of a worker organizing campaign. Sarah, you're a you're a rank and file flight attendant, right? You're a flight attendant at United Airlines. Um, so I want I want you to help us to understand a little bit about the experience for a flight attendant. Let's say it, let's say a Delta Airlines, you know, AFA right now with the machinists and with the Teamsters are organizing at Delta Airlines. I think this is your fourth effort to try to organize the last non-union airline among the big four carriers, putting aside the, the pilots. Help us to understand the thinking of a frontline flight attendant or a frontline worker in any workplace when they are presented with a union organizing drive. Let's let's take out the folks who are the activists who are committed and they're on the maybe on the uh, the member organizing committee and but just a just a, a worker who's in a, an organizing context. What? decisions do they have to make what thinking do they have to go through what are what are the difficult questions they have to answer for themselves before they decide whether to sign that card or how they're going to vote uh when the election is held well Seth, thank you and and thank you for calling out delta and i i think it's really important actually to recognize the partnership that we have with the international association machinists and uh the teamsters uh, to organize 45,000 workers at Delta. And we have seen since we announced that actually uh, a real change uh, in each of those campaigns. So having that support and solidarity and, and unions working together is important. But the individual worker, um, when I think about, uh, when I think about Delta Airlines actually, Delta is a very mature union buster. They they have woven this into the culture of the. Can I just say I've never. I, I'm just going to interrupt for a second. I've never heard that phrase used before. Mature union buster. Uh, that's that's a <laughs> disturbing. It, it's just a boy. Is that a disturbing phrase? But I get exactly what you're talking about. They've been doing it for a very long time. <laughs> they really know how to do it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, I mean I would say compared to, for example, Howard Schultz, who is like not doing it very well. Um, we're making a lot of people mad in the process uh, and showing the real difference, which side are you on? Um, Delta has integrated this into their company um, from the very beginning. So the vast majority of union organizing with the mainline airlines happened in the 1940s and Delta avoided it then and has avoided it decades since. And, and what they have driven at is to say to people, you are the best. And Delta 
um, has run a, a relatively good business compared to the rest of the industry. So they were able to say, you know, we're great and you should take pride in being a Delta worker. Um, they absolutely, I think there, there's, there's also something to be said for um, the regional aspect of this being based in Atlanta as well. And they have utilized the culture at Delta to get people to believe that um, you are very connected to the company and the company cares about you. And Delta has really driven that whole family idea. We've seen this made fun of actually at, at Starbucks and Amazon and other places where this, this comes from, you know, page one of the union busting handbook. Um, and, and so the people are able to make fun of that when the company is saying, we're a family, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and workers say, well, yeah, uh, but in my family, I didn't get paid for doing the dishes and I'm coming to work and I expect to get paid. So no, you're not my family. Um, but, but at Delta, they have been really believed that if you support the union, you're against the company. And a lot of people identify the work that they do in the profession um, with that company. And so if you go to a party, um, a holiday party, uh, you're meeting people for the first time, most often the question is, what do you do? People identify with what they do. They take tremendous pride in what they do. And Delta has taken incredible advantage of that. So have many other companies. Um, but they've led people to believe in the workplace that they're going against the company. So frankly, the very first thing when people decide to sign that card and then decide to become a public supporter of the campaign is they are trying to get over that hurdle of being looked at as though they are against the company. They are taking odds with people that they're going to work with. That is actually the hardest thing for those workers in, in that workplace is to take on the idea that they are trying to tear something down that everyone else is trying to lift up, which in fact is the exact opposite of what's happening. It's the union members who stick around at these companies. It's usually the union members who are making sure that the jobs stay at these companies, that they're not outsourced, that they're not contracted out, um, that the, the company is reinvesting in the infrastructure. Look at Southwest Airlines. The, the Southwest is, is highly unionized. Southwest had this major meltdown over the holidays. What did we see? We saw that their unions have been calling out for years the fact that Southwest has not invested in a scheduling program that can actually keep up with the times. So it's usually the unions that are looking out for the long-term success of the companies. And this has been turned on its head in places where there is mature union busting going on. And that is typically the hardest thing that workers have to confront. They also have to confront the idea that if you're going against the company, in most cases, that means if I'm getting a call from my supervisor at home, that means I'm in trouble. They're checking in with me. So, um, so I see you're wearing that union pin. What's that about? You know, so they have to overcome that fear in the workplace and what might happen to them. What we hear um, is that when, when we launched this campaign the last time, um, I had a reach out from a flight attendant who had been working just about 10 years at Delta, and she had never been supportive of the union. But she said, you know, lately I've been coming to work and I'm a single mom. And it just so happens that my kid has been sick a couple of times. I've been sick a couple of times. And all of a sudden I'm in jeopardy of maybe losing my job. My supervisor has called me in. I don't know. We don't have a sick policy. So I don't know if it's okay if I call in one more time. I don't know if when I come to work and I enforce the federal regulations, some passengers not going to write me up and the company 
company is going to say, this is, this is it and you're fired. And I've been going to work fearful. And here I saw you on social media walking through the terminals, joyful about talking about the union. And she said, she said, I realized that's what I need. And she signed up. She said, I want to sign a union card and I want to go to a training. She went to one of our organizing trainings the very next week. You know what she said when she came there? She said, I registered to vote for the first time in my life because I realized that I need to have a say everywhere. If I'm going to have a say at work, I need to have a say everywhere. And so this is people really find power when they are able to break through that fear and realize that they can actually take ownership of, of the pride that they have in doing their work and feel that professional pride, whether, you know, regardless of who their employer is, I've seen eight CEOs at United Airlines, for example, they come and go and they take their golden parachutes with them. We're not motivated by that. We're motivated by the good job that we do. And we simply expect a fair return for what we're giving to those companies. So that's really the biggest thing that, that workers have to break through. And, and then where there is that more stick than carrot at, the, at some of these companies, they are facing losing their jobs. They are facing closing down of, of their stores. They're facing incredible intimidation tactics to keep them from just gaining the rights that they are supposed to have. Um, so that's what we're trying to break through at Delta, but, but there are enormous, and I, I think Kate said, workers have to jump through hoops of fire in order to form their unions. But if we can build on this consciousness and we can actually have a united front with that 71% who are favorable of unions, we can do the kinds of things that built the labor law in the first place that has been eroded since the 1940s, but that went into place because of the great sit down strikes, because of the strikes that were happening, because of general strikes that were breaking out in individual cities. Companies wanted stability. And Seth, the last thing I'll say, is that quietly, I have CEOs reaching out to me because they see this moment too. And they see that there's a real risk and they want to see that there's another way to have stability. So we are this close to breaking through um, if we can just exert that power as a labor movement and understand and let them understand that we're putting everything into organizing. We're putting everything into changing the rules here because otherwise it's going to be chaos, instability. And, and at the end of the day, those CEOs don't want that. I, I, in just a minute, I want to bring up this question of putting everything into organizing or at least putting more into organizing. But, but Kate, I want to I want to bring up a topic that I think we should never talk about worker organizing without talking about race, because it's such a critically important issue. And so let me give you a couple of statistics, or at least a couple of points from the union members report. Black workers, particularly black men, are more likely to be union members than workers overall or than white workers in particular. And the union wage differential for black and Latino workers is substantially greater than it is for white workers. Help us to understand the role of unions in addressing or redressing racial disparities in the workplace and in society more generally. What have what has your experience been and what has your research shown? Historically, black workers, excuse me. Black women have been workers most likely to vote for unions um, and, and followed by um, Latinx workers and other workers of color. And this is despite the fact that employers very effectively during campaigns try to play one race against the other, will 
balance their workforce to make sure that workers of color are not the majority because if they're the majority, there's more likely to be a union victory. Um, but still, we see that the um, women of color in particular have been, over the years, have been a growth. However, in the last decade, we've seen a shift in unions to where they're organizing in response to the opposition by employers. They're looking for those industries where there's less opposition, where it's easier to get a first contract, where the public can play a bigger role in uh, pressuring the employer not to act um, so extreme. And what that means is the workers who are in the worst industries, the workers who have the most aggressive employers, the most who are what we have now known to think of as uh, you know, the, the employers that are, have to stay in the job no matter what happens, as in during COVID, those workers are seeing less organizing activity. Mm -hmm. And they are the workers who need it the most. What do they have to gain? We see that um, in workplaces where that are unionized, not only is there you know, a significant pay differential, as you mentioned, but that is much greater for workers of that great, that, that differential is even greater for workers of color um, and, and especially women workers of color, but also access to benefits such as paid leave, uh, you know, Women workers in non-union workplaces, you know, have are, have can take the minimum amount of time when they have a baby, as opposed to you know, parental leave rights for all workers, men and women, in unionized workplaces. Uh, access to sick leave, access to um, safety protections, all are much worse in the workplaces where workers of color are are, are concentrated. More than that unions make a difference in equity, fairness, end of arbitrary and discriminatory supervisor policies. They're more likely to have wage scales, more likely to have benefits that are universally applied. So favoritism and racism, which is very closely tied with favoritism, are no longer the deciding factor. So you see that um, union workplaces start to even out the wage gaps between men and women, workers of color and, and whites, and the extreme gap between white men and women of color. But more than that, unions are advocating in the broader community on behalf of, of, of workers of color. I mean, this is, you know, this was slow to happen. It should have happened decades ago, but, you know, they were there marching with Black Lives Matter. They're there fighting for, um, against the changes in legislation that are cutting back on, um, rights to vote. They're fighting for voting rights in the streets. And we see that, you know, the politically, the, the victory in Arizona and the victory in Georgia, it was, it was, you know, SEIU and Workers United and Unite Here with their members were almost primarily women of color who were the ones who made the difference. So we need to understand their power within the union and within the labor movement. Are unions doing enough? No, not by a long shot. And I think, and particularly this response of shifting away from the employers that have are most aggressive, we I'm really concerned that workers of color are going to be left behind. Hmm. They are more likely to be fired in organizing campaigns. They're more likely to have their jobs outsourced in response to organizing campaigns. They're more likely to be harassed and discriminated against. And so they face even greater challenges when they try to organize, yet they're organizing in larger numbers. So I just, uh, 
I was going to ask you, I wanted to ask you also about the public sector, but I want to make sure we get a chance to look to the future. But I do want to just comment on the public sector. Um, even though there was a drop in density in the public sector, there was an absolute increase in union membership. And I, I just want to note the remarkable resilience of public employee unions against an all-out onslaught in, particularly in Republican-governed states, um, where the rules are unbelievable in, and sometimes so restrictive that it's almost impossible not just to organize a union, but to keep a union. For example, in Iowa, um, they require the recertification of a union very frequently. I think it's for each contract, and the contract terms tend to be quite short. So you have to win an election every year, every two years, every three years in Iowa in order to keep the union you already have. Now that has made those unions much more muscular in their internal organizing and in their organizing in every workplace. But the onslaught has been remarkable and, and the public employee unions have held on. And in this report, they grew a little bit. So I didn't, I didn't want to let that go without mentioning it, particularly because there is a connection to race in the public sector for, for decades and decades and decades. One of the assured pathways into the middle class, once Jim Crow was eliminated and once government was more open about hiring African-American workers, particularly, but also Latinx workers, one of the sure pathways into the middle class was through public sector employment. So when you're attacking public employee unions, you're attacking in large part African-American workers and Latinx workers, as well as white workers who are represented by those unions. So let me turn now to looking to the future. Um, Can I just I'm say something, Seth? Sure, please, please. No, please so do. One of the things about public sector organizing is that despite these attacks, public sector workers tend to, the voting margins are extremely high. When they do have an election, they tend to have 95% win rates, 95% first contracts. And part of that is because in the public sector, you know, they can elect their employer. And you know, absolutely outrageous anti-union tactics do not go well with the taxpayers because they don't want their taxes spent on anti-union campaigns. So they they have they have a restraint that doesn't exist in the private sector. But most important, because they're covered by the Constitution, and we need to remember the Constitution stops at the door of a private sector workplace. Right. But it's public sector workers have freedom of speech and access rights. Um, that private sector workers don't have, which make organizing more um, possible. Part of the reason for the onslaught that we've seen against the public sector is because not only they organize in large numbers, but they use their political power and very effectively. And the effort of the Republicans is to literally, um, you know, stop that the growth, not just the growth of the public sector, but destroy the power and cut back on the financial resources and. You know, that's why we saw what happened in Wisconsin, and that's what we saw what what happened in Indiana, where unions literally lost collective bargaining rights. Right. But we need to remember that in states in the South where public sector workers don't have any collective bargaining rights, workers are still organizing, they're still winning contracts. It's a shout out to you know AFT, NEA, SEIU, CWA, who've been out there organizing in the South with big wins for public sector workers. And all those teachers who are who are striking, even though they don't have collective bargaining rights and are not protected by the law in the public sector, it, that's that's truly heroic and the unions are doing a great job. They are indeed. So Sarah, let's turn to the future. Um, the AFL-CIO's affiliates imposed an additional tax on themselves to fund a new organizing initiative at the AFL-CIO. 
Uh, it'll be several million dollars worth of additional money focused on organizing. And the effort hasn't started yet. I believe it's going to kick off fairly soon if it hasn't kicked off already. Are you optimistic that this new initiative by the AFL is going to help to change the trajectory? And let me open it up since we're sort of coming to the end of our time. Even though you were disappointed about this report, are you generally optimistic about the future for worker organizing and for the labor movement more generally? I'm generally optimistic because of the people that I'm meeting all over the country um, and because of these campaigns that I'm seeing that are coming, that are really worker-led, they're, they're, they're worker-initiated, worker-led. If you look at the Starbucks campaign, for example, this was an effort by a group of workers who wanted to just organize all the coffee shops in Buffalo. That was the plan. And then what did they do? They sparked a national movement. Uh, so, so I am optimistic because of where people are today and looking for answers and really understanding that th this is not sustainable. Their lives, the way they exist today, are not sustainable. And that usually brings people to a place of having to make a decision, having to make difficult decisions about what they're willing to do to change it. Um, so very optimistic about that. In terms of um, the initiative, um, the, the raise on the, the affiliation dues and the initiative, I mean, it just doesn't go far enough. So um, we should be looking at how we're spending those dollars today and where are we investing those dollars today? Uh, because if we can, if, if you look out at the strikes that have happened um, since 2018, where you've seen uh, changes really overnight in a couple days time, sometimes it's a couple weeks, incredible changes in people's lifestyles because they're out on the picket line. And, and this is part of why unions are popular. Um, so they want to take action right where they are. And if it's all pushed to politics and, and only talking about voting, first of all, you're only having an opportunity to get people's attention, let's say once a year in some cases. In other cases, it's every two years, every four years. And um, it's not enough. When you give the example of having to vote every couple of years on whether or not you just want to keep the union you've already won, there is, there is a power and muscle in that. The struggle in that keeps people engaged. Out of necessity, you have to stay engaged. So this idea, you know, I, I adore Walter Ruther. I, I, I love uh, what he did for uh, working people in this country and the standards and the example that was set. But you know, one of the things that um, that that he and his brothers did was fight for labor peace, fight for a place where they could have four and five year contracts where you weren't having these big fights every couple of years. Well, I think that there is a consequence to that, right? People forget about the fight, people lose the fight, and they put more effort into the relationships rather than using the power to change the dynamics. And, and that's really what we have to be focused on. So do I think that this initiative by the AFL is going to make a change? I do not. I don't think it's enough. Um, I don't think there's enough strategy. I don't think there's enough mapping out about where we can actually make a difference. For example, utilizing transportation, um, utilizing the fact that the uh, freight rail workers were coming to a head with a major contract. I think as we look ahead, a major fight to look out for is the UPS contract negotiations. Um, because this, this is an intersection between many different industries. And this is an opportunity. We already have leadership talking about this. They're preparing for it for over a year now, preparing to have a strike 
with what is a company that has basically provided a lot of um, middle class jobs, right? I mean, this is this is where uh, we really have an opportunity to to show the country what exercising worker power can look like. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking we got to get our demands. Uh, clear in all of our bargaining, because under the Railway Labor Act, there's still the ability to have secondary boycotts. How big could this strike get to change the dynamics here in 2023? Mm. And that could lead to the changed labor law that Kate was talking about that's only going to happen when the workers exercise that power. So I think it's really important that we're not just putting, you know, $10 million more into organizing, which is a drop in the bucket and not going to get us there. But how are we strategically thinking about how workers can exercise our power in the places where we already have it to then give power to more workers to join their unions and shift this entire power dynamic across the country? Well, can I just say, I think we just made a little bit of news around the UPS uh, negotiations. I'm not going to, I'm going to let the journalists who are watching this sort out from what you just said, but man, there was a big nugget of news in there. Very important. Kate, let me ask you um, for our last question before I wrap us up, because we're coming up on time with a minute and a half to go. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics is always relentless in meeting its deadlines. You and I were talking about that before we started. So next year, a year from today or a year from today, thereabouts, they're going to put out another report that will tell us about where we are in 2023. Where do you think we'll be? Uh, will union density be up? Will union membership be up? Um, and will you be less disappointed and more optimistic? Well, like Sarah, I'm always optimistic, but I'm optimistic because of what workers are doing and the potential out there. There are a lot of variables about what happens next year. What happens in, in terms of recession? What happens in terms of climate change, war in Ukraine? All of these affect the economy and affect workers and affect employer opposition and union density. But a lot of it's within the hands of unions. Um, do they more aggressively take on capital? Do they focus on the issues that matter to workers? I give the perfect example of too much overtime. Workers are tired of working too hard. They feel like they don't have time for their families. They don't have time to take care of their health. And COVID brought that to a head. Unions have not, have not made that a priority. They, it, we, we saw workers wanting to strike over overtime and unions leadership not wanting to make that an issue. And this has been a decade long fight. Workers don't want the 12 hour day. They don't want seven day work weeks. And so that's an issue that if unions took a lead on and also paid leave, if they really took a lead on these issues and made them a major political battle in the community. And by political, I mean not politics and voting, but something that they were really trying to make a change, I think that would move workers forward. I think dealing with issues of women's rights, women's health, um, racial discrimination, these are all the things that can move things forward. But unions are cautious on these issues. And this is that we don't have time for caution. Union density is too low for us to have time for caution. And I think if they take on these issues and tackle them and organize around them broadly, I think then we will see growth. If they try to stay the course and do things cautiously, we will end up maybe even worse off next year than we are right now. 
Peyton, Sarah, I, I didn't even get to half the stuff in my notes because this is such a fantastic conversation. I wanted to get out of the way and let you tell us what you had to say, and it was worth every minute, and I really appreciate it. Thanks to Sarah Nelson and Kate Bronfenbrenner for joining us on the Power at Work, Workers by the Numbers blogcast. Uh, thanks to all of you for watching uh, and for joining us regularly here on the Power at Work blogcast. We're welcome to, we, we welcome you back. Uh, we'll continue with these blogcasts as long as there's interesting things to talk about, uh, respecting workers and worker power and worker organizing. Um, subscribe so we can stay in touch with you. Subscribe right here on the blog. Let me also thank our producer and technical producer, Lexi Anderson. Another great job. Um, we're looking forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks very much and uh, have a terrific day. Thank you. Thank you, Seth.